everybody and welcome back into Cult Film Cafe with me, your host, Jonathan. And sadly, on this episode, we are without my partner in crime, Kenzie. Um, he had other things to do, which I will be berating him for for all of his life because he, there is nothing more important in this podcast, or there, at least there shouldn't be, um, in my opinion. But we do have a fabulous guest. It is Nick Hill, the man from The Flash Gordon episode. Welcome back. Thank you for inviting me back. So normally um, on the podcast, if you're f- familiar with it, we let the guest pick the film. But there is a film on the list which is celebrating a 50th anniversary this year. And it is the one and only The Godfather. My father is no different than any other powerful man who's responsible for other people. this part in the picture it puts me right back up on top again this hollywood big shot's gonna give you what you want he says there's no chance i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse you know my father men are coming here to kill him now you want to get mixed up in the family business i thought you weren't going to become a man like your father I never wanted this for you. Freedom, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Ever. Michael, do you renounce Satan and all his works? I do renounce him. You asked me about my business, Kate. Is it true? Take the cannoli. I think the name has got a lot of weight. Yeah, I don't think you really need to say much about it as well. It's like when you just say, oh, the Godfather, right, the Godfather. It's actually, the amount of people that I know that have not seen this film, that like films or are really into movies, alarms me. I find that very strange. Like, I was speaking to friends um, last night, and one of them who is into film, and will be a guest on the podcast very soon, has said that he's never watched The Godfather. And I was shocked by that. Do do you, as as somebody who's got more years than me, have you bumped into people that are fans of film that have never seen it or like we had a wee discussion before we started recording do you think that there's people that just kind of try and bluff the fact that they know about the godfather i think there's a lot of people that bluff and the reason why i said that again before the recording this is a film which i feel that i've known since i was a teenager but not because i've watched it it's because it's one of those films which I think a certain type of person likes to boost the credentials with. And 
I think we've all probably met people like this who, I mean, I love Flash Gordon. I'm on, not ashamed to say it, but it's not a cool film. But I don't mind that. That's just what I like. Whereas, you know, there will be people who use the, the, the Godfather thing because it makes them sound cool and knowledgeable. I mean, it's interesting about what you're saying about being my age. I thought I'd watched the film before. But when I watched it for this podcast... I'm not entirely sure if I have watched it. And again, that might be because of that cultural impact, which I've been out with people who've spoken at that much about the film. And it's one of those films which you see lots of clips of and you're aware of certain iconic scenes which it then merges into your consciousness as a result. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, like you said, I've always been aware of this film. I mean, not when I was five or that, but when I was consciously aware about film, I've always been aware about it. But I distinctly remember watching it for the first time, like, watching it, watching it. I remember um, borrowing, I don't know if it was DVDs or VHSs, and I was about 15, I think, at the time. And I had the house to myself, and I was in the living room, and I watched Godfather Part 1, and I put it on. And I was engrossed from minute one. Because I, I made the conscious choice to sit down and actually watch and appreciate the film, and it's it's one of the only films that I could probably recall vividly seeing it for the first time. And maybe should a fifteen-year-old watch a film like this? Well, I don't know. It's not super violent. Um, don't think there's much in terms of gore and stuff like that. Nick's making a funny face <laughs> at me here. Um, I don't think so. I think there's, who I think there's horses, worse films. Who knew horses had that much blood, eh? <laughs> yeah, but fair. Um, I feel that's a good point. But in, apart from that, I mean, there's not. It's, it's not super bloody, I suppose, is the best way to say it. But no, I've watched it twice already this year. And every time I watch this film, I just, I love it. It's just... There's some things I don't really like about it, but for the most part, I, nothing's flawless. I don't think anything can be flawless, and that's across the board, like any form of art, whether it be music or film or sculpture or painting, drawing, anything. There's nothing. And actually, I don't think the best, the things that are objectively the best are ever flawless because it's their imperfections which make them unique. And I think that's fair about this film. There's, if this film was done by another person, it would probably look incredibly different. But that's artistry. And I think there's a lot of people that maybe don't or can't see the art within filmmaking. But yeah, I mean, this is definitely one of them. That it's, And even to this day, it still looks fantastic. It's just, it's one of those films. Do you have do you, rem, do you remember when you watched it for the first time, or do you use like you said you're like you're not sure you've actually watched it all the way well, through? Well, to be honest, I'm not sure if I've watched it all the way through. I assume that I had done, but I can't recollect it. I mean, I'm aware about the different scenes, but I, I mean, I've said to you all fun. I'm not a huge fan of gangster movies, so this would have been something I wouldn't have actively sought out to watch. Um, although bizarrely enough, I did read the book when I was a teenager. Um, and I've read several of Mario Puzo's books, but when I was growing up, I was more into books rather than films um, on that basis. So I can only really think that if if I did see it, it didn't really register with me. 
Um, or perhaps it's something I didn't really see all the way through. It's quite a long film as well, and I can get why people would maybe go so far in and be like, uh, if they're not invested in any part of it, I can get why people would turn it off. But the first scene in this film, it's the wedding, and it lasts for about 45 minutes. It's that long. And I, I get why people could get bored with it, but there's that there's so much kind of nuanced stuff happening and you can start to see the different arcs and the different people. I don't think this film works without it. And obviously it's in the book. I'm guessing the book starts at the same place and it probably is a big chunk of the, the book at the start is this wedding. But that needs to be there because that's where you get introduced to all the main characters of the film at different points, right at an entry level. Um, so unlike me, you've read the book. You've also then you've watched the film and probably come back on the podcast. And I know that you're a big reader and you'll probably remember reading the book more than watching the film for the first time. But is the, is the film a good... I know the book's Godfather Part 1 and 2 as a whole because it's quite a big book, I'm guessing. It is a big book. I mean... F- from memory, because it's been a long time ago, I do think it's quite close to the, you know, to the book. Um, I mean, I mean that opening scene when you've, uh, you know, at the wedding, as you say, it's setting up the different story strands for what goes forwards. But it's, I think that's quite an interesting one because Marlon Brando is almost like the the chief executive of a company, and although he's got a wedding, his company doesn't stop for that day. But they've all got demands of him. I mean, you've got Johnny Fontaine who wants to go into the acting. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you know, so you've you've got that. You've got the Undertaker who who's asking for a favor. Who's asking for a favor? Um, and but that, but that's quite strange because the Undertaker's indicated as being out with the gangster community, and he doesn't want to normally mix with someone like. Mm-hmm. The Corleones, because he he criticises them for you don't call me Godfather, mm-hmm. you don't call me your friend. Well, that was a big thing because, my, like uh, Don Corleone, Marlon Brando plays Don Vito, um, the head mm. of the Corleone family. He was um, insulted yeah. that he went to all other avenues yeah. apart from him. Which ordinary people would do. Yes. Ordinary person. Well, he went to the police. Yeah, he would go. And he, Marlon Brando's character was like, he took that as an insult. Yeah. Because he views the police as useless. Which, when we get further into the story, he might have a point. <laughs> um, but, uh, but Very corrupt back in the day as well, though. Well, well this is the, the interesting thing about the film. I mean, I told you I'm not a big fan of gangster movies, mm-hmm. right? And one of the the problems I have with this movie and other ones, I like to be emotionally invested in, in at least one character. Right? Maybe that's the best way of putting it. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be a main character, but there's got to be someone that I'm rooting for. And even the ones you think you should be rooting for, you find out are just as bad. You know, I mean, again, look at The Undertaker, right? He he just wants vengeance. You know, he just wants to, you know, get his own back. Mm-hmm. Um you know, on that because they've been insulted. Um, even Michael, who starts off as the war hero, mm-hmm. and you think, 
oh, well, hang on a minute. This might be the character I can emotionally invest in. He's, he could be the good guy. And then he wants to bit up further on, if you will. Don't mean to jump on, but he wants to. Can jump on, he yeah. just wants to kill that police officer. And when Sonny's talking to him about, we do not get personal. Yep. He's going, this isn't personal. This is business, mm-hmm. which is rubbish. It's personal. Of he's course, just, it is. he's just, and 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 again, it's it's all these personal slights. It's all this this family honor. It's all it's all this artificial construct that you've got, but it's corrupted from what the normal person would understand. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they all want to get on. So in many ways, this is almost like the American dream. You know, come to America, free capitalism, we'll get what you want, right? But this is a group, this is a world in which to get what you want, you've got to either kill your your people Mm -hmm. or get other people to get killed them or you bribe people and like a black hole going over the event horizon, the moment you topple into it, you can't get back out. And and that's what happens to all the people making the promises at the beginning. Yeah, It doesn't necessarily work out the way they expect it to actually go. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those ones where be careful what you wish for. Yep. You know, it's you've made that pact with the devil. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, the undertaker gets told that, you know, one day... Yeah, I'll come to you. I'll, I'll come to you. Maybe I won't. Yep. But maybe I will. And you're thinking, well, I don't want him knocking at my door and asking me for a favour. <laughs> That's funny. Because obviously I've, I never read the book. I and mean, when I watched it the first time, when you see that scene and they have that conversation, but I didn't know that, that, that he was going to come back into it later down yeah. the line and he was going to ask for that favour. Maybe I was being naive and maybe he was always going to ask for a favour. But... Uh, things in the film transpire in a way where he had no other... Mm -hmm. Because of what happened, um, it kind of... Things lined up that way, obviously. Um, Yeah. I just want to touch upon it quickly. Like, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and you've never seen The Godfather, please go and watch it. Um, But yeah, I just want to give a quick synopsis of the film so the film's based on the Mario Puzo novel of the same name which I think came out late 60s 69 something like that yeah Um, and then obviously like most popular books or or like most books people with loads of money buy film I think Paramount acquired the the rights to the novel for $80,000 before it became I think they bought it straight away, and then obviously it became one of the big, biggest bestsellers for the two yeah, years. Yeah, but when they bought shows. it, they didn't know that was going to be chaos. It's quite yeah. interesting about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the the film, the film. So that, like we said, like I touched on, the book spans the first two films. I mean, the Godfather's a trilogy, but the first two films were made really close together. Seventy two, seventy four, they were released. The books, pretty much those two films, I would guess. Am I right in saying that? Because in the book, it goes back to young. I think it does. Theater. I mean, again, but I, then you're, I've, I've not, I've not yeah. reread it since then. But, but I think when yeah. I was speaking to people about it, they were saying, yeah. "Oh, the book." Because I was talking to um, one of my friends, Paul, about it, and he's a big fan of the, the film, and he's read the book, and I think he said that uh, the, the book's the mm. first two films, and I was like, "Makes sense, obviously." Um, 
But for those of for us that are film watchers, this film spans a decade. 1945 yep. to 1955. Yeah, the film's about three hours, like you say, but obviously it spans that time, and it follows essentially the main storyline as as Michael. I would say it's yep. like his ascension from war hero, college educated, college graduate. He was a clever one of the families. Father wanted a very specific life for him in politics or high powered office business, whatever that may be obviously to have an inside track probably there was obviously a tinge which is a bit sad father-son relationship but Michael was never ever involved with the family business like we said he's just returned from the war at the the start of the film um but that's that he's that his story arc's probably the main driving sort of narrative to the film and it's his ascension from that to essentially take over from his father right at the end of the film or towards the end of the film because it's family business it's family business <laughs> there we go um but within the story as well you've got other people you've got sonny the older brother played by jimmy can he's a bit of the fiery hothead and then you've got uh, john Kazali, who's probably got the best imdb history of all time because he died so young but he plays fredo i don't really like fredo He's a bit of a weak one. I don't think many people do in the film. Yeah, but I, I, mean, I, I know. Um, it, I, mean, I think John Cazale, I think he's such a great actor and he plays that character perfectly. Yeah. It's, his performances, maybe not the standout, but it might be for some people, but he's a wee dark horse. And he's probably one of the family members that has the least screen time, but when he's on screen... He's on screen, mm-hmm. and he's doing. Maybe it's maybe an actor thing because he was so good, and I think he's an a, he's an actor's actor. It's a bit like you get a filmmaker's filmmaker. Yeah. I think he was really high respected among his peers, um, and obviously, sadly, I think he died of cancer in the late seventies. Um, but an incredible performance. Um, then you had um, Robert Duvall's Hagen, who was. It's a bit weird because at the start of the film, Michael explains to Kay, who's his love interest, played by Diane Keaton, how they're brothers, but they're not brothers. And it's like, oh, Sonny found him in the street and ever since my father's took him in. How have you got different names? And it's a bit of a, it's not family, but it is family. He's like the the consigliere or the, the family lawyer. He's got a small practice, as he says to the Hollywood, I work for one client. Yeah, that's funny. We'll get on to that. We'll get on to that. But um, but we just want to give a wee. And, and that's basically, the story follows Michael's rise to ascension, but you've got all the extra add-ons that go around it. And basically the principle is, is it's a power play. There's, others, there's five families. Everybody knows how the mafia works. It's a gangster film. It's essentially replicating... Eastern American sort of New York gangster culture where there's five families, you've got head of the five families and it's all a power play. Um, and I think at this stage, the other families think that the Corleones are the, they're the we- their weakest point that they've ever been. They're trying to get rid of them because although they think he's weak, he's still got a lot of influence in the right places. Don the Don, he's he's in politics. He's like 
pulling the strings. And I think a lot of people, it's envious, I suppose, and I don't think, I don't think they like his decisions. Um, so yeah, that's that's also another part of the story arc is like you know, they're trying to essentially get rid of the family. I suppose we should maybe maybe start with uh, Johnny Fontaine. I think is that the first place we go. I think so, because Johnny Fontaine's favour is he wants to be in a movie and he, the director won't, and then Hagen goes to LA and has a conversation with the director. Well, I mean, I suppose a bit of context for that is a lot of people always assume that Johnny Fontaine is meant to be Frank Sinatra. And the story, as I understand it, is that Johnny Fontaine was meant to have more screen time than he did because Frank Sinatra um, was very, very angry, I think, with Mario Puzo originally about being in it. Um, I actually saw Al Martino in concert in Glasgow back in 2008 and he spoke a bit about um, The Godfather during the concert and uh, he was saying about how he got some grief from Frank Sinatra over playing the part um, but I think there was also some rivalry between them before singers and um, I think Vic Damone another singer was meant to be in for the running for the part but I think he described, I don't know how much tongue-in-cheek it was, that his his dawn wasn't as big as El Martino's dawn. So I don't know how much was tongue-in-cheek about that. But certainly when you look at Frank Sinatra's career in the 40s and the 50s, there are similarities uh, you know, between it. Although I don't think Frank Sinatra asked for any favours like that. Um, I'm not, I'm, not I mean, aware, I'm not aware of any horse's heads or anything like that coming no, out of... No, but like... It wasn't, it, 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 um, Frank Sinatra wasn't the cleanest person no, in the world. No, um, I mean, there's many stories that abound um, about his, uh, uh, his early beginnings, but it wasn't just specific Frank Sinatra. No, there were I mean, loads I, of them. I mean, I didn't realise until about the Frankie Valley story, you know, mm -hmm. when they started yep. out about Joe Pesky and things like Joe that. Joe Pesky, yeah. So and it's interesting as well as because this is predominantly about the Italian community yep. in New York, which, and again, I think Godfather was something which was coined from this book. It wasn't something which was used before mm -hmm. this came out. So when you watch gangster movies before, you might have had Italian gangsters, but I don't think you've got quite the same views about the Italian mafia, mafia mm -hmm. that you now have. I mean, with The Godfather, you've got The Sopranos, you've got Goodfellows, you've got you've got this whole industry that started, and that's a template Yeah, from that. Um, but yeah, it's quite interesting about using that because it, I suppose it gives it that bit of authenticity and excitement knowing, well, that could be based on yeah. an individual person, which gives it something additional for the actual film itself. Um but I mean, again, it's it's quite because this is this is the dawn, who mm -hmm. they come to favor for all sorts of strange things. Yep. You know, I want to be a film actor. What can you do for me, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that 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 that's a bit of a strange thing when you think about it. Yeah, uh, the... and it's not the first time because Michael tells yep. a story about yep. when he was now what was it? He was in a, a lead of a dance band, which Frank Sinatra was originally as well, and apparently how. Um, Don Colonia basically said to him, this is 
uh, to release him from this contract is to either have his your signature on it on your blood. It's your choice. Well, obviously, in the podcast we touch on the sex roles and quote abilities. One of them. I was going to bring that point up because that's probably the first time this anonymous line that's maybe one of the most famous ones from the film is used. Interesting enough, although that's well known from there, I don't think that was the first time something like that was used. I think there was one in a John Wayne movie, but it wasn't quite like that. But but I mean, but, but I mean in this would, film. Yeah, but it wouldn't be as menacing no. from John Wayne necessarily yeah. as it would have been from... Uh, yeah, uh, you know, you know, you know, on that one, because it's Luca Brasi, because he's the the heavy, yeah. and he he was waiting to see the dawn, and that's how the story came about, because he was kind of it was kind of funny, because he was repeating what he wanted yeah. to say to the dawn when he was going to see him, because he was just thankful that he got invited mm-hmm. to his daughter's wedding. Why wouldn't he? He was he was the heavy for the family, you know, mm-hmm. um, but he just wanted to go and say, but he was sat kind of just behind where Michael mm-hmm. K was, and it was like he was repeating himself over and over and I think she was like he's mental yeah. who's he well, and then Michael's like it's Luca Brasi who's that well, <laughs> well, well, well that's it's a, like... but that, that's interesting context from that because mm-hmm. this, is a, this is a wedding this is a wonderful day <laughs> this is this is the sun's out we've got you know and then you've got all this dark stuff going on beforehand yeah. which isn't exactly auspicious for um, you know for a wedding no you know on that one well the way they film two of the cool two, two of the two of the cool things I like about the film technically is the way the film opens because it opens from black into the office of the undertaker having the conversation asking for a favor i'm sure that's when, how the film opens the film ends auspiciously similar when the door closes and it fades to black because at the end of the film i know we've jumped right to the end there's a whole this is where michael's essentially now filling his father's Mm-hmm. Shoes and he's becoming the head of the family. The board of directors have essentially kind of explained to him that he's not but the CEO. It's yeah. the time where he's done something to his sister's husband, um, and uh, this is a one. Th- what a polite way of putting it. <laughs> um, we'll get into it in more context, but I just wanted to say just the way it looks. The film opens similarly to the way it ends in terms of visual. And I really like that. It's like bookended it very well and it's in the same room. Although you're not in the room, but you're like an outsider looking in because it's Kay looking in. But just before that happens, it's um, Italia Shire plays Connie. She's obviously in hysterics because Michael's essentially just had her husband bumped off, right? He's just killed him because... He's and done, he's, he and went against he went against the family and it was always going to yeah. happen. He's, his time was going to run out eventually. Carlo... Was was a sense. It was always going to happen, but and she's in hysterics, and obviously Kay comes in and asks what's wrong, and that's when Michael gives her the one chance to ask her about the business, and he asks, "Is it true?" And obviously, coldly lies mm-hmm. to her in the face directly and says, "No," and then that's it. You get the guys coming out to talk to him. The doors, and as the doors getting shut, it's fading to black, and it's like this. He's it's kind of he's the bad guy. He he is the bad guy. I just. I don't agree with Michael, but I like his story arc. That's one thing I like about this. Initially, I felt like he was he'd done it for the good. He essentially just wanted to kill the people that tried to kill his father. He felt like that was tit for tat, which some people view that in everyday life. If you kill my kid, I want to kill your kid. Because that's the way people think. It's like it's only fair. It's not rational at all. But I think in that moment, he felt like he was doing the right thing. Obviously, he isn't, but 
So I think there's maybe a bit of forgiveness that some people... If Michael had only killed the corrupt police officer and... Is it Salozo? Is that the guy that's trying to sell the drugs? I think so, yeah. He's trying to get the the Don and the sort of five families involved in hardcore drugs. That's kind of where that comes from. And he obviously has his... They try to kill the Don. And obviously Michael thinks he's doing the right thing. He kills two of them and then he goes away. Like that's when it kind of shifts. He goes in the run. They send him to Sicily, where he gets looked after by the mafioso over there. That went um, well, didn't it? Well, no, but he's out of the way. And I think if if Michael had only killed those two people and never ever took over from his father, I would have an understanding of why he did what he did. It's the fact of that he went. Do you know what? I I think as soon as he done that, he he, he was in. And I think subconsciously. When he made the decision to do it, he knew what he was getting himself into. I think it's crossing a line. I yeah. mean, when when Sonny is talking to Michael, when Michael wants, he says, "Wants to kill him." Yeah, he wants to kill him. Sonny's trying to talk him out of it. Yeah, because he's like, because he's taught, he's trying to sway it to the military. Oh, you're not going to be like miles away. You've yeah. not got a rifle. You've got to go up close. Because <laughs> that's another one of the famous things. Bada bing! You've yeah. got to like, yeah. But because because Sonny also tells him as well. This is personal, mm-hmm. and although he denies it, I don't believe that. You know that that's he, he's going down that route. But interestingly enough, I mean, we spoke about it before the podcast. Although he is expected to become like a senator or a or a governor, and he's got high hopes. Yeah, it's still an extension of a corrupt family. Hundred percent. It's still going to be doing, being in a position in order to be able to do favors for. Keep the family on. So in in essence, there's no difference between um, doing that and actually being, you know, in the family business as well. And you've got the scene where Diane Keaton is talking to um, Michael about uh, becoming a senator or a a governor, Mm -hmm. and um, he accuses no, she accuses he accuses her no, she accuses him of being naive. Mm-hmm. And he says, "Why am I naive?" He says, "You don't kill people. You don't order people killed when you're a senator or governor." And Michael looks at him and says, "Now who's being naive, right?" And it's... but that's very true though, because pe- senators and governors are normally the people that are signing forms to send military into countries and take them over. It's very it's the well, same I mean, thing, you know. I... What I mean, you might you might wrap it up in a different bow, but essentially you are making mm. that decision for people to mm. essentially die. Mm. But it's it's quite interesting because. I mean, I, I was watching this and I was trying to think, is this a bit like the Anakin Skywalker sort of thing where mm-hmm. he starts off believing he's got good intentions but then falls down that slippery slope? It's very, but it's eerily similar, isn't it? It is in that sense, but the thing is, I think I think he's more rational and more aware of... Yes. I mean, he wants to... He, I mean, Anakin wants to save, save his wife, right? Mm-hmm. And he thinks that the Jedi are, you know, against him. Michael, okay, he's using revenge to start off with. Um, and he's quite cold-blooded about it. And I, I still think it's that tipping point. The moment he commits that shooting the police officer, mm-hmm. he's now gone down that different path he won't come back from. Um, and although he's gone to, like, like Sicily eventually, as you say, to actually mm-hmm. do that, you, you can't, he's guarded there. His life's, you know, you know, you know, you know, guided by the, the local mafia and what have you. So he's still not actually got away from the the life 
It's just to try and protect him. When but he goes do you think there. what happened in Sicily as well kind of fucked him up? Because he met somebody, fell in love, got married, and then I think it, when she got in the car and they'd planted a bomb, there's a bit where it, you don't see Sicily a lot, but when you do, it's very apparent that there's there's one older guy who's trying to save him and they move him about, it's compromised, it's compromised. But what normally happens with these families and, and on screen or maybe in, lit, in literature or media is it's very hard to infiltrate the higher-ups. They end up infiltrating somebody that's close. Well, that's it. I mean, that, that... Because they've offered them something that he needs or a way out or money or something because it's a cent the guy that goes against them in Sicily is somebody that he felt super close to and was close to him but that's the way they do it they get somebody that's got n- n- essentially nothing to lose and everything to gain if it all goes right essentially plants a, a bomb that gets triggered when you drive when you press the accelerator in a car and they're expecting Michael because he's this guy's wanting to move him and he packed mm-hmm. the car and they're going but what actually happens is his wife who he's met in Sicily is in the car and she looks like she's having a great time on Michael she's got it puts it boom explosion gone and I think at that moment he realised that no matter where he goes or who he meets he's going to have to confront what his family is at some point. And I think that might have been a tipping point as well for him. Like he tried, he wholeheartedly tried to move on and start a different life and it, he couldn't run away. And it, and it was naive of the family to think he could and for them not to be able to try and kill him even there. And then I think he makes the decision that he's probably safer going home and that's obviously like, there's a quite a time jump there in the film. It probably isn't as quite a a time jump in the book, obviously, because you can span it longer yeah. in a book, obviously, like, whereas in the film, you're kind of constrained by time. This film's probably nowhere near long enough to encompass a 10-year period, but because it's that kind of time, because you have the bit where Kay's trying to reach Michael and Hagen's being very business. If I take this letter, then I've kind of said where I know where he is, and they're all just trying yeah. to... They're essentially trying to help Michael run away but it's like it was never ever going to happen and then uh, all of a sudden you get to the point where he's turned up at the primary school or the school where she's teached and he's he's changed because what he turns up and he's three-piece suit and he looks exactly like the person he said he was never going to be and that's the shift and like you were saying that's where the distinct difference is because Sonny, um, we've not spoken about Sonny, Sonny's a great character. Not that he's a good character, but he's so irrational and impulsive. He just does things without thinking. Mm-hmm. And essentially that was the d- demise of his character. Sonny gets killed. He was meant to be the one taking over. He was the oldest son, all of that stuff. But he was irrational and acted out and got himself in a predicament where he got... He got two. F- he ended up on a in the causeway. I think that's a causeway or something they call it. And they, they, it was a setup, and they just essentially empty about f- lo- like about f- 
a thousand rounds into him. It's and well, and it's not even that. It's when the guy kicks him at the end as well, just for good measure. I think that's what finished him. Um, <laughs> but, but, but this is an interesting film because I don't think it's a very subtle film. No. I mean, the death scenes, they're brutal and they're very over the top. I mean, you're right. I mean, he turns up, right, and then the guard... At the, at the, the toe. At the toe. And the guard closes his window and then he ducks down, right? And, then, you know, and you're right. I have never seen so many people. Um, for, what, for one person? Yeah. But they put all those bullets in into him, and he still staggers out the car. And but you're right. I mean, the the, the kick at the end for good measure is very very bizarre. Um, you're on that, but it's they don't do things by half when it when it comes to uh, deaths in this. Um, I'm even going back to when Michael kills the police officer. Um, he shoots him in the throat, and then for good measure, just shoots him in the forehead. You know, okay, it's only the two bullets, but it's. Um, like, nothing's half measures. No. Um, you want to make I think, sure. I think, I mean, I think the most subtle one is probably the Don, because they kind of get him at the market, and mm-hmm. what is it, one guy or two guys with, with a gun, and they, they shoot him a few times. It's not like, there's, not, there's nothing compared to Sonny. And arguably, arguably, the Don's the more powerful person. I know mm-hmm. he's an old man, but they maybe shoot him mm-hmm. half a dozen times. Yeah. But with Sonny, they genuinely well, empty full chambers of machine gun but, bullets into him. But the, the thing I feel watching the film, and I don't know if it's intentional, is the violence gets higher and higher as film goes. I mean, you said it was at a measured pace, which I can understand about about the plotting. But each death is more violent than the last one, uh, more more brutal. I mean, even when um, um, Alfredo's being coming, he's in the car getting garroted and um you see the legs kicking out and smashes the you know the the glass mm-hmm. and you're supposed to uh, you know go away in that oh that's uh, um carlo mm, carlo um and that's I, I, the suppose that's the difference between michael and maybe sonny is he's very astutely clever in the way he sets people up because before carlo's death it's like he's giving him a way out because he sits him down and he goes, I know what you did. It's like an interrogation. And he's like, just tell me the truth. Just tell me the truth. I know that. So he's like, I know what Sonny's like. He's, he's yeah. my brother. I get it. 
and then eventually breaks down. He's like, "Look, right, I'm putting you on a plane to Vegas or whatever. <laughs> you're out. You're out yeah. the family. You're nothing. But go." And he th- he gen- Carlo genuinely believes that because up until this point, he's viewed Michael as a genuine human being because he doesn't really think he's that way inclined because the way Michael's doing things is it's never him that's doing it. Apart from when it was personal and he wanted to be the guy to kill those two people, Michael doesn't kill anybody else. It's other people that he's obviously set up. No, he has killed other people. He's just done it by setting them up. Yeah. And Carlo believes him and believes that he's maybe like a nice person giving him away, like, look, understand and go. And I was like, you are a naive little boy, aren't you? You genuinely think you were getting in that car and it was going to drive away. But again, maybe it comes back to the fact that Michael's never meant to be part of that. So people view him being different. Yep. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, Sonny views him as you're not meant to be doing this. He views him as if he was worthless. Yeah. And, Alf- and Alfredo was astonished about um, uh, that he got passed over. Oh, when he goes to Vegas to yeah. do the thing with Mo Green. Yeah, he, he, I mean, when you see him talking to, um, and you, you're talking about, that should have been me. I'm no other brother. I'm not stupid. Well, actually, you are stupid, yeah. right? Well, you know, That's we- a funny scene, though, because they send Fredo to Vegas because they want to get into the casino business. And Mo Green's the the guy out there who's in charge of it. And when Michael's obviously came back and took charge, we're jumping around the plot here, people, but this is what we do. But we're here just to talk about bits that we like and things that stand out when it eventually comes around to conversation. But there's a bit where, because John Cazale, Fredo's in it at the start, but then he, gets, he quickly gets sent away because it's like he they want to... They want him to be groomed in the casino business so that they've got that out there and he can maybe run it yeah. and, and be away. Um, so, yeah. It was very cold like to do it that way. Um, but I think there's maybe that that way where... Because Fredo was with the Don when he died. And that's the one thing I hate about Fredo is the way he acted in that. It's like he got out of the car, he dropped the gun... His dad's lying in the street, dying, and he's just sitting on the pavement, crying. He's not doing it. He does no impulse to do anything. It's like, it's like, that's what I just. It's unforgiving because I would view myself in that position of not. I couldn't have acted like that for one. Like, and maybe it's just his personality. But yeah, and I think maybe Michael and that is maybe thought that it's kind of your fault that dad's in the position he is because if you've done your job you know and you weren't soft then maybe he wouldn't have been um but anyway we're, we're at mo green and that's obviously says michael is because michael goes to vegas and fredo knows that michael's coming and he thinks it's like a party because he's got the, the girls around and the band's playing and stuff and he turns up and michael's in the suit and he's like get not nah, get rid of him it's like purely business. And I think Fredo's shocked, like you say, about how... So you're in charge? Yeah, I'm taking over. And Fredo's like, what's happened? Like, Because obviously things have changed. He's not been there, and obviously this stuff's changed. Then it's that bit with Mo Green. It's like, the, it's like the power play. I'm here to buy you out. And then Mo Green's totally shocked. You don't... He's like, who are you? Yep. And he's like, well, I am... Like, I'm the man, like... And he's like, you've got, what is it, like 48 hours? I'll leave in 48 hours and I want an answer. 
or something is like the last line. And it's like, and Fredo, Fredo always does that. He's like, you can't come here and speak to Mo Green like that. And that's when Michael delivers the line, never go against yeah. family. But again, Michael's, I mean, again, Michael's a new breed because... But you can tell that he's well-educated. Well, that, well, that's it. So he's very business-like. Now, his dad was business-like, but his dad... He obviously come, came up in a different way. Yeah, he came up in a different way. Um, and I, again, I think you, you also get the idea about how things were changing about when the the drugs come in. Now, when he's at the original meeting, when he turns down being a supplier, it's not because he is against drugs. It's because, well, as he puts it, I am associated with people who will turn a blind eye to gambling and that's the senators and mm -hmm. what has it. But the, there's a difference between that and the drugs. But everything all changes on that now because this is a this is a new a new world coming in against an old world. And yeah, because I, I think was it back in the day it was essentially gambling and liquor were like probably the well, two biggest the, things. What, 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 Cigarettes, maybe I don't what, know if what, that was a what, thing. What, well, that's the sort of feeling that you're getting. Mm -hmm. You know, within the protection rackets and things yeah. like that. Buying um, the police, you yeah. know, like um, getting the shop owners to give mm -hmm. you a wee cut to, for yeah. protection, stuff like that. But you also get the impression that things are changing because, as you say about the five families... Well, they have that meeting towards the end of the yeah. film. And there's a concern now that because it will be so lucrative, the drugs trade, that whoever gets into it will have more buying power. And, and, then, and be able to just wipe yeah, everybody out. wipe everyone out. So That's funny, that meeting's weird, because the catalyst to that is, well, like we say, we're still jumping around. Um, but, and by this point, they think, they think they've think they killed the Don. Miraculously, the Don survives, purely because of Michael. Mm -hmm. And that's the first time you get an inclination where Michael could potentially have sway that way that was the first thing when he went to the hospital and he started seeing things before they happened you were like he's potentially going to be the man because he's he can see things minutes or before they happen and that's what he does he moves his father and he was going to get bumped off and he stands his ground with the police and then obviously Hagen turns up his lawyer and he gets him out and then that's obviously when things like that happen, but the Don miraculously survives. I mean, he gets shot half a dozen times or so um, in the back, survives. They thought he was dead. That's when they try and infiltrate Sonny because Sonny looked as if he wanted to be part of the drugs trade because he could see the money and the power. But the Don's very, very, as much as he's corrupt, but he had he had a, what do you call that? What's the word? He had a morality to certain things. Like, he, he was moral to a point. Like, he he, he had he had limits. He knew what he was going to be involved in and knew what he didn't want to be involved in. And he's quite right, because he didn't want to be involved in something that was going to ruin families and neighbourhoods and stuff like that. And that's what he seen. And realistically, those drugs that infiltrated these neighbourhoods did kill families and children and neighbourhoods eventually and over time. So he was ahead of the game that way. He just didn't want to be involved mm -hmm. in that. He felt it wasn't the nicest thing to be And he, he was right. But once they thought they could get... Once they thought the Don was dead, they obviously initially thought that Sonny was going to automatically take over and then they could maybe get involved with Sonny because he looked like he was and he wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. But lo and behold, that wasn't necessarily the case either. Um, and I suppose that's how the downfall of Sonny, obviously, um, and he ended up, dying and, and, and Michael was a completely different breed and as soon as Michael got involved 
he kept the same mindset as his father and what he wanted to be involved in, especially initially. And it was his when he came back. It was like I've got my dad here, and I don't need that because he sent Hagen away. He was like, "Well, you you go away. I don't. I, if I need any advice, mm-hmm. I'll get it from my dad." And it's quite interesting because that's the point of the film where his dad's after. So we'll jump back to the five families that have the discussion. So after Sonny's dead, and they go and they call a meeting at this big table, and it's all the five families. The head of the five families are there, and uh, Don Corleone um, is talking about this. Why he doesn't want it? Obviously, he's lost Sonny. The guy that. He's few, the, the main one he wants to talk to is like, you've lost your son, I've lost my son, let's make a pact, let's just stick together. Because they're obviously jealous of him because he's got power that they didn't have because they're all talking about, but you're in with this, we don't get that, you get that. And he's like, he's got, he's like I've ever never given you help. And they, it looks like they're, when they leave, they shake hands, they embrace, it looks like they're all on the same page. But, that was never really the case. It was kind of like a bit of a show. And I think Don, the Don knew that, but he knew he had to do it because when Michael comes back and he's coaching Michael, he tells them that they're going to come for him. Yeah. And it's going to be somebody that's close to you. Yep. And that's exactly what happens. It's like the driver or somebody. It's like the old guy. And it's like when you have, Sadly... Um, the Don passes away, which is weird. He got shot multiple times, but dies of a heart attack in the garden playing with his grandson. That's crazy. Um, I'm not gonna lie, but that was sad. That was sad for me to see him go that way, just because he'd survived and it looked like he was having a great time. And yeah, but he wasn't a nice man, though. I mean, <laughs> look, I mean, I'm, I know, I know that I mean, it's more. He's morally ambiguous, but well, it's well, sad that, to see that, him that, die. That, that's um. The understatement of the you know of the day. I mean, <laughs> I mean again, this goes back to that. The, one of the problems I have is that none of them are nice, and I st- I don't understand why you want to be part of this sort of world. I mean, it's a dangerous world. It's a violent world. You spend more time worried about having that gun underneath your your pillow to make sure that you're not taken out. How do you enjoy anything? You know, you go to the theatre, you don't know if you're going to get assassinated. You go for running the car, you need to check the car to see if there's a bomb underneath it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, know. it's obviously not a very nice world to live in. Well, it's but... not, uh, but again, when you're watching it, 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 it's almost like it's a commentary of, they do this because it, they think society full stop is corrupt. So well, it kind of is at that point. It but, was. Every, politics was, well, po- I'm not getting into a political discussion in the podcast. <laughs> it might still be corrupt. And there's a lot of people that probably view it as still being corrupt. But it was very corrupt at that time. Police was very corrupt. It was like everybody was out to earn money or to get stature well, or be known as this well, person. It's like, it, it was a, this is a There was good people in society, obviously. Mm-hmm. But. A lot of the people in any form of position of power were all morally corrupt to a point. They had to be. Otherwise, they wouldn't have survived at all. One, they would have got bumped off. Or two, they would have never made it anywhere. And nobody would have taken them seriously. So it's kind of hard to see the people had to be that way. And it's not right. I'm not saying that this film's right. And I'm not saying 
that the characters are good and they've done the right thing. But I don't, I, I don't think there was really an alternative. Um, and we're not doing the second Godfather, although the book's got the second film in it. I think when you get to the second film and you see how the Don actually had to struggle to get to where he is, I, I think people, although they don't necessarily agree with what he ended, he's ended up doing and stuff, there's people that might agree with it. I think he was just trying to build a better life for him and his family, and he was going to stop at nothing to to get there. Right, he done the, he done it in the wrong way, but I think there's people that go at that time period. It was maybe the only way, and he kind of took advantage of a situation. Is it morally right? No. So it's quite it's quite a difficult one. I mean, I don't know, you know, how. I mean, it's, it's a very mythological film about what it's created. There's a mythology mm. which is there, which, as I've said before, you go into The Sopranos and it goes forward, you know, about that. And I don't know enough about the community on the ground about how widespread that was in reality because mm -hmm. it's, it's obviously a film which is obviously fiction, but there's obviously influences on it as well. Yeah. But I think it's probably quite a telling film about when it was made as well, nineteen seventy was it nineteen seventy two? So yeah, it would have probably been in production sort of seventy, seventy one, yeah. and then got because released I, the early seventy two in America. I couldn't have seen that being made ten years before. No. Um Well the movie industry was different as well. Well it, it was but again when you watch doing gangster films prior to this one, um you You've got your gangsters and you've got the gang, but you've then normally got the outsiders, and there's normally someone as good as trying to stop Jimmy Cagney or mm -hmm. whoever it is who you've 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 got doing that. In this one, it's you're purely immersed in inside the family yeah. and inside that world, and it's quite a suffocating world. So the ordinary world which you and I inhabit, yes, doesn't exist. So it's quite parallel. In all in all manner of things, I suppose it's the idea about if you went into say a pub, and you and I having the discussion about football, there could be someone across from us having a discovery a discussion say, about a bank robbery. We won't know, but it's a completely different world. But there's only six foot between us yep. and this other person, mm -hmm. and we may actually know this other pe people and you say hi, how are you doing? You talk to them, but they exist in this parallel world. Mm -hmm. Which is alien to us. Hopefully, we'll never ever get access to it or know about it. No, but it's it's there, but it's running parallel. Yeah. It's almost like a different a different universe or a different dimension mm -hmm. to reality. Yeah, I think this is one of these films that you get. I get fully engrossed in it when I watch it. Specifically, if I'm watching it, like if I'm putting it on and I'm like, I'm, I want to watch The Godfather. I get engrossed in it because it is morally corrupt, but. I kind of understand what's happening in the film and the reasons why they're doing what they're doing. It doesn't make me a bad person. I'm not going to go out and make a make a crime family. Like That's not what I'm going to do. But it, it makes logical sense as to why it's happening. I can understand the, the, the environment that they're in. And like you said, the film doesn't have an outsider because any form of police that's involved in this film is corrupt as well. They're no better than the gangsters that they're trying to... or working with not even trying to arrest they're working alongside them it's it's one of those there is a couple of redeeming characters in it but there's not enough obviously to make it like 
I get where you're coming from with that, but I just get massively engrossed in this. And just touching on the bit where we're at the five families and we're now at the stage where the Don's coaching Michael and he, we would just say that he essentially tells them this is exactly what they're going to do and this is the type of person that they're going to exactly use to get into you. And what I was going to say is, you, I'm sure it's his dad's funeral that they're at where they all turn up, the heads of the five families, and you can see. And it's um, this is this is why I wanted to bring it up because there's the sort of, one of the technical things I like about the film is the use of cross-cutting at, the, at the, the christening or the baptism. Michael Francis Ritzing, do you renounce Satan? I do renounce him. And all his works, Michael Ritzy, go in peace and may the Lord be with you. Amen. I love, like, I'm not saying it's great to watch in terms of what happens, but the way they do it, it's like, because Kay's like, they want you to be Godfather to Michael. Yeah. They actually do, that's yeah. just when they be, he becomes a Godfather, but not, I got, he becomes the Godfather, not only to his sister's, to his nephew, but mm -hmm. and at the same time, what we're watching while he's becoming Godfather. This is one of those understated scenes which is, don't have that much violence, really, does it? <laughs> I'm just saying that this film's not as physically and gory violence as a lot of films. I know that it is violent and there is scenes that do depict violence, but it's not one of those films that's shock and awe, if you yeah. know what I mean. Like, but it is interesting about that scene that you talk about. You know what I mean when they yeah. cross-cut it, because well, each of them, and it's like the setup of each of these well, people, well, and it, they all get bumped off at well, the exact same time. Well, I mean, he gets asked, do you renounce Satan and all Satan's ways? <laughs> um, but again, I think this is another influence on on Star Wars, because remember when you've got Anakin, who, when that Order 66 comes out, and he goes killing all the young children, whatever, whilst his wife doesn't believe that, you know, is wondering what's going on. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of cross-cutting in that one yep. as well. And I don't know if that... Not as good a film, though. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if that is influenced Maybe. by... But that's why I think there's parallels also with Anakin. Yeah. You know, you're going in as well. I love it. I think the, the way that they've done that, that at the end of the, so good. I love it. It's my favorite, one of my favorite bits of the film, and I love it every time I watch it. I'm like, that is the way that they've done it mm -hmm. is so good. But you've also, and yeah, because you've also got, and the it's same. like he's getting his vows or whatever yeah. they say, read to him. And it's like, and he's, it's like he's 
this and, and, and also want to bring back he's uh, the thing is is he's at a christening so he's not physically involved with mm-hmm. any of these killings but it's him he's orchestrated every single part of it because you've got master christening when they're all walking out the car turns up and one of his lieutenants comes up mm-hmm. and is briefing him you know, mm-hmm. everything's all been done mm-hmm. um, you know about that and uh yeah, I mean, that's quite a disturbing juxtaposition of ideas about the christening, the starter life, whilst he's ending the lives of all these people. And again, I don't understand this mindset, and I'm glad that I don't, but the idea that you can rationalise bringing an innocent into the world, having that religious backdrop, but you're perfectly at ease with killing all these people. I mean, you've got, I mean, you've got the guy getting the massage... I mean, the guy waits for him to put his glasses on and then shoots him in the eye. Then you've got the other guy. More green. Yeah. Then you've got the eye who the guy who is trapped in the revolving doors. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a great setup. I love that one. Well, to be honest, you might not want to go through revolving doors ever again when you actually see but it, that. But I think what Michael's done is he's learned not only from his father but the way that they were trying to get him. Yeah. They but, infiltrated people that those people would never, ever suspect to be able to essentially mm. trap them. But See, I... like the concierge at the doors. Yeah. That's kind of like the guy in Sicily planting the yeah. bomb. So Michael's went, do you know what? I'm not going to try and get your right-hand man. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go right to the yeah. bottom of the bottom and the people that you would never, ever suspect, yeah. but I'm going to infiltrate mm-hmm. them and they're going to put you in a position. Yeah. But again, why... Okay, I know you've got the trappings of power and I know that, um, you know, for a certain sort of person, that's the be-all and the end-all. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I'm, I'm anxious about living a, a relatively quiet life. <laughs> You know, and we've spoken about mental health issues. I mean, how these people can do all these sorts of things. I don't and think. I don't think they have mental health I issues. Well, I I they might have mental issues. Yes, but but again, it's 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 a, a completely different mindset, which the average person cannot no, relate to. And no, which, no, no, I, I can't relate to. It's just when I'm saying that, I just get engrossed in the story, and. I'm not saying I believe everything they do is right, but I can rationally see why they have to but, do the things they do. But it's, it's strange because this this comes into this artificial world that they've created. Mm-hmm. They've created this warped code of honour. Mm-hmm. The family is everything, which yep. on the surface, that's great, the family is everything. But what we understand as a family being everything is different to what they understand the family being. It's like, it's like you're saying... If something someone does something to us, we might be very angry about it. Yeah, you might wish someone was dead, but you wouldn't fall through and well, do definitely it. Definitely not. It's not in your nature. But to take that step, mm-hmm. to cross that line, and for these people, they're not doing it once. Yeah, well, multiple times. It's multiple times. It's, it's, I I think, I think Michael is different in that where the Don is family's everything, and I think he was protecting his children in a way. Like, I think the Don knew what Fredo was, but was never ever willing to do it because it was his son. Mm-hmm. But I think Michael is very willing to cross the line if it needs to be. Although family's everything, 
And I think that's what happens. I'm pretty sure in Godfather 2, does, that, does Fredo not get killed in Godfather 2? As far as I'm aware, I think. And I think it's Michael that does it. Not personally. Yeah, because he because has he's scene, went against. He again. has a scene, I think, yeah. with a priest mm -hmm. talking about how I put. That's why I got mixed up a little bit with Fredo, because yeah. um, he talks about um, having the. Um, I think Fredo killed, and also about. I think he refers to the husband of his sister as well. Mm -hmm. um, on that one. I mean, I'm pretty it, sure that I mean, Michael it, has Fredo killed yeah. in The Godfather Part 2, yeah. purely because Michael gave him a warning in this film, don't go against mm -hmm. family. And I think he knew the way Fredo was as a personality, that it probably was going to get to a point where there was something going to have to happen because the downfall of the ecosystem that they lives in was probably very frail with somebody that vulnerable. And although I've said that what Michael's done and what other powerful people have done is they got people to infiltrate that you would never suspect, but I think that Fredo it was vulnerable to other people mm -hmm. potentially getting in his head and crossing his family. And I think Michael's seen that. And I see that in Fredo because think about how he viewed Mo Green. Oh, you can't go against Mo Green. Well, no, what you should be like, oh, I back my family. It's like he was almost in his pocket, but he's not, he's part of this family. You shouldn't be listening to him, you should be listening to us. And I but, think but, Michael seen that there was a potential for his brother to potentially double cross him. But the thing about, about Fredo, that way. But, but Fredo believes he's been betrayed by Michael because he's been passed over. Yep. So, but he's not. It's just that was the way the Don wanted yeah, it. But he still believes that, uh, you know, in, in his mind, mm -hmm. you know, about that. Um, and this is what drives more. And again, I think this goes back to what I'm saying about the, the sort of lifestyle they've got. Who can you trust at the end of the day? There's not, I mean, okay, they make a big thing about family, but they can't trust their own family. No. So I mean, the, but I think the biggest problem for Michael is his brother got murdered, his dad died. Sadly, his brother is they. Fredo thinks he should be where Michael is. Michael thinks Fredo's a liability. Talia Shire's character Connie is a bit erratic in terms of the way that she is, and you can see that. I mean, they they murdered their husband and stuff like that. But I think at the end of this film, Michael probably views. Like he probably sees things around him and goes, I have no family left because the ones that he did trust are no longer. Sonny's dead, his dad's dead. Fredo's a bit of a weird relationship. Connie, he thinks he's doing the best for her, but it's not he was doing the best for her. I mean, he was an abusive husband and they shouldn't have been together and Carlo was a bad person. But he didn't. He didn't kill Carlo because Carlo was beating up his sister. He killed Carlo because Carlo was in the family and double crossed the family. It had nothing to do with the fact. I would have more. I would. I would prefer it to have been the fact that you were beating the shit out of my sister. That's why you deserve to die. Didn't give a shit about that. He only gave a shit about the fact that he he sold Sonny 
up the, the garden mm. path and got him ambushed. Didn't give a shit about any of that. Sonny cared about the fact that Carl was beating his sister up. Michael didn't. Michael's really cold and calculated in everything he does. It's minimum risk, maximum satisfaction for him because he's not involved in it. He's getting other people to do every single mm -hmm. bit of work for him. He's never involved. Whereas that's the difference between him and Sonny. Sonny wanted the blood on his hands. Michael doesn't. Apart from the two people he killed at the start, that was personal for him. They killed, They were. They set up I my dad. Sure, I'm going to give him. Yeah, sure, Sonny, it was business. No, but he. <laughs> but it was definitely personal. We know that it was definitely personal. Yeah. But apart from that, that's only that's only two. It's only blood that Michael's got in his hands. Of, but he's killed all these other people, I mean, I mean, and that's the thing because he's well educated. Yeah. And he's been in the military. He's seen how things work from that side, and he's able to structure the way he does things that way and it's it's clever i'll say he's a very very astute businessman that's also a godfather and is getting people killed but he basically there's no risk towards him because he's he's not there and the thing is is when it cross cuts to all those people dying it's like he hits them all in the same day but it's, it's not even that he's also he's also got witnesses that say that he's at a christening and he, he can't be involved in these things because he, how can he be in five places at once? That's also really clever. Do I agree with it? No. But the technical aspect, the cross-cutting of told is great. I wanted to touch on, before we kind of wrap up this part, like the music. I love the score of this film. It's one of those understated scores that isn't, doesn't try to do too much, but it's perfect in every way for this film. And I love it. And there's some subtle nuances that I love specifically I touched on this on my friend Jordan's podcast when we'd done a bit of The Godfather it's see when Michael is in the restaurant just before he shoots he goes to the toilet and gets a gun and then it's the intensity of the railway track and that builds and builds and builds and you can that's where the mental aspect comes you can see it's rising and it's about to go bang I love that I think when people do things right and everything works harmoniously, it's absolutely fantastic. How do you feel about the music? Well, I came across the music before, long before the film because my dad had uh, a recording on vinyl, which we still have. It's one of those and soundtracks that's well-lauded, and I'm guessing it probably was released as a piece of work. Yeah, I mean, it's... And again, the 60s and the 70s in particular, I think, when it came to gorgeous orchestral arrangements um you, you couldn't really you know beat films like the godfather i mean we touched on when it's flash code like how that changed everything because it was a, a rock track but that to me is one of the best ones up there like dr Chivago, um you know those sorts of soundtracks and it's one of those pieces as well as which gets used for all sorts of different things mm -hmm. It's not just specific to that film now. No. Um, I think it's it's alarming as well that like you talk about scores in the 60s and 70s. Why were Italian composers they go, they, they go to for this? You know, Ennio Morricone and Nino Rota done this. It's, did, was it just their subtle craft and the, sort of orchest the, the orchestral side of sort of more classical scores? Because... Towards the end of the 70s, you had people like John Williams and stuff who became... I mean, John Williams is probably lauded as one of the best sort of scorers of movies of all time. Mm -hmm. But he's very, very different. He has his very... he He's more like blockbuster. He does films and it's all like high intensity and loud and stuff. Whereas 
these Italian composers, everything's subtle and it kind of rises and falls at the right time. It's like, it's beautifully done that way where I think sometimes with a John Williams or somebody, it can be a bit in your face. Yeah, I mean, but again, I think that's probably how films change. I mean, John Williams and people like that, I mean, Star Wars and Jaws changed the entire film genre forever. Mm-hmm. I mean... I mean, I mentioned also now Dr. Dr. Shivago. I mean, maybe it's because they were both based on blockbuster books, which, for, I mean, for, you know, for, for a lot of these films, you're highlighting specific emotions at a specific time, but not necessarily a lot happens. I mean, when Morricone was doing things like um, The Good, The Bad, and Ugly and things like that, you had scenes, for example, you've got that one where you've got Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, um, and uh, you like well, all three of them all looking at one another. Now I don't know how long that goes on, but it seems to be forever. But the music yep. is important about yep. actually doing. It's that. also and it also follows what the camera or the director yeah. or the editor's done because it's all like. Everything it just moves. It's like the yeah. eyes. It's like focuses in, and then you get wider shots. You get close ups. It's it's a nice variety. That's a film that was made in the sixties, and uh, I I think um, I always we have this conversation of what is the best trilogy of all time, and it has to still be a trilogy. Now that's the way I quantify it. I mean, the Dollars trilogy is probably some people's answers, and because they are three fantastic mm-hmm. films, but they're arguably more recognisable for the music mm-hmm. because of the Spaghetti Western. They're probably among the best Spaghetti yeah. Westerns of all time. And I think the music in those Spaghetti Westerns as well, mm-hmm. it's just, you could probably put on that album and if you were familiar with the film, know exactly where yeah. you are in the movie depending on the piece of music you're mm. listening to. I just had a quick look. You were talking about uh, Dr. Zhivago. That strikes me as well. That was um, Maurice Jarre. Yeah. Who I'm guessing that's... Is that Jean-Paul Jarre? Is it Jean-Paul Jarre? Is that his dad, brother? I honestly something don't like? know, to be honest. Are, are I never they... thought about that. Um... He was a French composer. Um... But he he scored Lawrence Arabia passes to India. He's done some big epics. I mean, Lawrence Arabia was an epic um, music. Once Upon a Time in the West is another one, I think, which um, has got probably a soundtrack which more, pe- more people are familiar with than perhaps with the film if you're not a, a Western fan. Yeah, he's just, so Maurice Jarre was Jean-Michel Jarre's father. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah. He's like a new wave electric. Obviously, his dad was a famous sort of film musician. Jean Michel Jarre's like a. He was like kind of new wave electronic, I suppose. It was a bit of a. Well, I've actually got a couple of um, his records. He actually, if I, if, if I remember rightly, when he played in the late 80s, I think, in, uh, in London, he flew Hank Marvin across, I think, from Australia to play guitar with uh-huh. him, if I remember rightly. Um, actually, it's quite interesting because I could see a logical progression in the son mm-hmm. from the father's music. Yeah. Um, when you've got that, but again, 
that late, that 60s thing and the 70s thing up until you're talking about maybe Star Wars. Yeah, like I mean, late I mean, 70s. I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, I love the Star Wars music and things like that, but you're right about there being quite a sea change. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was still sort of epic films happening in the late 70s, but it's swiftly changed quite quickly. Like, Apocalypse Now, 79, it's got a great score as well, but because of the type of film, it can be quite brash at times. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is beautiful as well. But epic films disappeared. Like, because I think people's, obviously, what people like changed. We, we were, I've spoken about that to more people like, um, like films like The Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now in the late 70s were very long-winded films and people appreciated them for what they were. But Michael Cimino then went on to do Heaven's Gate, this mm -hmm. big epic in the early 80s, and it bombed. It was probably one of these films that's known for losing the most yeah. amount of money and I think that's because people's what people liked changed very very quickly and I've spoken about it on this podcast as well like we've done it in the Tremors episode Tremors had came out two years prior to when it did it probably would have been a bigger success than what it was it's just like I think timing is is everything as well but not necessarily for music yeah, but, um, but when you for film how long some of these films take from the original idea yeah. to then uh, coming out mm -hmm. um so yeah, and and people change quite you know quite quickly uh, yeah. about what they like and what's. So yeah, I mean we've we've spoke for at length of this part of the podcast, but it's probably right for this magnitude of film, I suppose. This could be a longer episode than it exists. <laughs> um, I don't know if I necessarily have loads of things I want to take out. It's it's just one of those films. I think you should maybe allow it to have that time. Um, I just we've touched upon things. I I love. The, uh, we'll just quickly get into the ratings of the like for me. I love this film. It's not my favorite film of all time, but it is. I can see why it's up there with being one of the best films of all time in terms of the way it's made and stuff like that. Um, it's incredible. Um, if you've never watched it, please go and check it out. If you're into film, I know Nick's not a gangster film fan, but some people are. Um, I think this one, as much as it's a gangster film, it's kind of different in a weird way. It's kind of like an, a gangster epic, kind of like Once Upon a Time in America, um, that film. And that's another film that you should check out if you're into these sort of longer, epic sort of style gangster films because they are, I would say, they are better than like I know that people love Goodfellas, but I prefer those other two films to Goodfellas. I quite, I still like Goodfellas, but yeah, fabulous film. Love the music. Francis Ford Coppola as a director has made some of the best looking films ever, and they still look fantastic to this day. I think it was right to get Mario Puzo on board to co-write the screenplay with him. I think that always works great if you can get the author that wrote the book to write the film. I mean, it's a win-win because there's not going to be any deviation, really. Um, yeah, Nino Rota's music's incredible. Cinematography's marvellous. Editing, like I said, there's some fantastic bits of editing that probably have been ripped off um, multiple times. I think these films like this that, that do, that people look at it and go, oh, where can I put that in my film? A bit like Hitchcock in the sort of 50s and 60s there was people ripping him off and it was just because of the way he was doing things it's very much like that 
so yeah, it's unsurprising that this is going to be the first five star film for me on on the podcast. So it's a five out of five in the popcorn buckets for me. Um, yeah, not saying it is my favourite film that we've done, but it, it's it is a five out of five film for me. What about you, Nick? Well, I'm not a big fan of the film. I have to confess. Um, I approached it again with an open mind. Um, I mean, the problems I have personally is that I can't get emotionally engaged in a film like this. Um, I also don't like all the violence in it. Now, I know it's important because uh, in nature of the film, but it's not something that appeals to me when I'm watching a film. Um, that being said, objectively, moving myself from my subjective personal view, I'm aware about the impact that it's had um, on gangster movies afterwards because I don't think they were ever the same and TV uh, series that have come out on the back of that yeah um, and I agree about the the, the cross cutting yeah with the you know I mean there's some editing choices the editing choices and the music yeah. is, is is you know good so that's the plus points um, although I'm not a big fan of it um, and because I'm aware about all these other things um being objective, not subjective, I would give it a four. That's that. I, I, knowing you, I thought because I think, like I think, like a lot of people, you're trying to be attached to a character. I, I could have, you could have given this three or whatever. And but I like the fact that you've came in with an open mind, and went, you know, taking into consideration everything. I mean, the film's fifty years old, and it still mm -hmm. looks fantastic as well. I mean, it's maybe not as colour popping as films of mm -hmm. the day but I mean I think it's one of those timeless films that in another 50 years people are still going to look at it and go how are they making films like yeah. that in the 70s you know well I think it's important when I'm looking at a film that I look at it in two ways the, the personal subjective part yeah. how it hits me and then the wider picture about how I can appreciate what it's had on mm -hmm. um, you know in respect of that so that's why I do try and look at these things yeah in, in that way and that's why I like the conversation going backwards and forwards about looking at things in a different light which either makes me think about things differently or I might stick with what I've already decided but I've had that tested by another viewpoint yeah well that's fair it's a five from me it's a four from Nick so like we've been speaking for a while already so normally we move into the rules we will move into the rules probably it'll be a lot quicker this section than it normally is this is normally a longer section but I think just talking about the film deserves a bit more time rather mm -hmm. than maybe putting the metrics on it so we'll just touch on them quickly um, low budget stroke box office flop now this is a funny one like I said earlier Paramount Pictures bought the rights to this for $80,000 um, the film was produced on a budget between sort of six and seven million dollars, which you'll probably say that that was probably quite a sizable amount of money in 1972. I adjust things for inflation, um, so that would be around 50 million in 2022, which is a sizable amount of money. But I was probably, I would probably say that that was maybe considered a big budget in 1972. I'm not quite sure. There's probably not that many films with a bigger budget in, mm -hmm. in 1972. 
because things like special effects and stuff weren't really around. Seven yeah. of them was filmed sort of on location and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, that's probably quite a big budget. So fifty million today. This is where it kind of staggers me though. The film grossed, depending on where you get your figures from, anywhere between two hundred and fifty million and two hundred ninety million dollars, which. That's its worldwide all-time growth. So obviously it's had re-releases, but worldwide all-time. Um, and if you adjust that for inflation, that's somewhere between one point eight and two billion dollars. It grossed forty times its budget. Mm. Adjusted for inflation, it would put it in one of the top five highest-grossing films of all time. I think adjusted for inflation, Gone with the Wind's probably the highest grossing film of all time. If you adjust mm-hmm. for inflation from when it came out in the late 30s, that was late 30s? Gone yeah, with the I think it was about 1938, 39. I think that, but obviously you've got Avengers Endgame, Titanic, which are up in the sort of 2.5, 3 billion range, but yeah, we adjust it for inflation. So, um, yeah, surprising to look at it. I would say no for this one. I wouldn't really call it a low budget for the time. No. 50 million isn't a low budget even today. And it, it was the highest grossing film of 1972. And it was the highest grossing film of all time. Until, do you know what film knocked it off? I would say Lord of the Rings. No, it was quicker than that. Well, Star Wars then. I thought, yeah, Star Wars would be the, the one after that, five years later. Star um, Wars. Star yeah, Wars. I thought you were talking about no, as no. it stood out as a today no, no. and that, but... Um... No. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, incredibly, it was one of those... Which is really funny, and I've got some, some other figures here. Just quickly touch. It, it, it made just over 100... It made just over 136 million domestically in the US. This is the biggest thing that... I don't have... Some newer films you can get their box office and track it the whole time it was mm-hmm. out. Older films it's harder. But the one thing that jumped out to me and it's opening weekend or opening week it done three hundred thousand dollars, which is probably a lot of money in seventy two. By the time the second week rolled around, the second week it done five point two million. So it was probably the same way as the book that when Paramount bought the rights mm-hmm. If Paramount didn't buy the rights when they bought them and waited, it would have cost them an arm and a leg because the book was the, a number one bestseller for two years. I think it sold 10 million copies mm-hmm. in its first two years. And if it bought it after that, the, I mean, the rights to the book would have cost probably millions of pounds. Because if 10 million people have bought a book, you can categorically say that it's probably going to be a success when it hits the big screen because there's already 10 million people that's familiar with the book and invested in the book. This film was essentially made to make money. They they obviously knew they had something. Mm-hmm. So that's where on the metrics at Cult Film Cafe, but it still baffles me as to why this film's on the list, but we'll get to that later. But yeah, I think I'm I'm guessing you're not really surprised at, at the figures and how much money it's made and stuff like that. Well, I mean I'd read about how much money it had made and the fact that you've got two sequels and then there was a mini series as well mm-hmm. um you know on that and then you've got that paramount tv yeah, series paramount tv well, that's interesting scenes. that's coming out sooner um, and again about out. how influential as we mentioned before it's been on all sorts of media since then mm-hmm. 
you know, and some of the quotes. Well, we'll get on to that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, well, that's a big, big fat no. <laughs> Rewatchability, um, that's a funny one. Um, the film's just short of three hours. Um, I think it's 2.55. It's almost double the prime rewatchability metric that we follow of 90 minutes because I think a 90-minute movie really doesn't exist anymore. Everything's sort of two hours plus. Mm-hmm. But I think 90-minute movies are prime rewatchability purely based on it's not really a lot of time. And I think if you put it on a channel and it was five minutes in, you'd probably be like, oh, watch that if it's something that you like. I, but the problem for this is I absolutely love this film and I've watched it multiple times this year already and folk go like why? And I'm like well I've done a couple of podcasts on it I mean I like film um, so yeah and I and I know I know that people will say that this film purely probably because of its length is not rewatchable because it is a long sort of it's a long time investment. I mean, maybe people don't necessarily have three hours to sit and watch a film. Um, I know my sister would absolutely hate to sit <laughs> down and watch this. Um, so I know that there was people out there who would say, it's re- I would say it is rewatchable, but that's personally because I'm a fan of the genre and I'm a fan of the film. I don't know how you feel about the rewatchability of it. You're probably probably swaying to the fact that it's probably not rewatchable. Well, I wouldn't watch it again, and it's not on the fact that it's three hours because I you're not it, a fan. I'm not a fan. Um, as I said about the genre, I don't get emotionally engaged, and I don't like the violence. Mm-hmm. To be perfectly honest, um, I mean, I know it's been superseded by films afterwards about you know, about the violence, what have you. Um, but I also think as well as we haven't really touched on that much, but I think it kind of glorifies the culture. It gives a very romantic viewpoint, mm-hmm. which again, as I said, has influenced so many subsequent films and TV series. But I don't know what is fact and what is fiction now in respect I of, I don't of think that. anybody does. I don't, yeah. So this one about having the family and the honour and things like that... Um, that doesn't make it right. I agree no, with that. yeah, I'm, I'm saying right. so. So because of issues like that, um, I wouldn't be all that keen to watch it uh, again. Mm-hmm. Um, I said it's not because it's three hours. I can watch some that's three hours. It's just yeah, well, that, that's fair. I mean, I, I'm I'm happy to to subside this one, yeah. like because I know that there's lots of people out there that even are fans of this film. Be like, I mean, it's probably a film I'll watch once every ten years. You can't really call a film like that rewatchable, but for me, I think maybe more. I just like watching it for a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. I think the more times I watch it, there's different things that I see, and that's why I like watching films, especially films that are lauded so highly and probably taught at film schools around the world. And there's things technically about it and. That's a good thing. I think a film like this is, depending on your mood when you watch it, you might pick up wee subtle bits or you might mm-hmm. get engrossed in, in this arc of the story or you might want you might be more invested in this point. And I like that. There's more that it's not it's not a basic film. That's that's quite complex and yep. that's what makes it rewatchable for me, but I'm happy to say that it's not rewatchable to the sort of for the norm. You know, so yeah, I totally agree with your points. But like I said, I've watched it twice already this year, 
I probably won't watch it again this year, I'm not going to lie. But I might watch it next year. You never yeah. know. So anyway, um, we're going to move on swiftly to quotability. And I think we spoke about it earlier on the podcast. Yeah. Quotes are a bit of a funny one. The bit where Michael talks about the the bit with Luca Brasi and Johnny Fontaine and, you know, that sort of contract thing and it's like, you know, my father made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And that's Dot the Dawn. That's it's probably one of the lines that people will say from it. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse is one. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You can act like a man! What's the matter with you? Is this how you turn down a Hollywood Pinocchio that uh, cries like a woman? <laughs> what can I do? What can I do? What is that nonsense? Ridiculous. You spend time with your family? Sure I do. Good. Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. You look terrible. I want you to eat. I want you to rest well, and a month from now, this Hollywood big shot's gonna give you what you want. It's too late. They start shooting in a week. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. Now, just go outside, enjoy yourself, and forget about all this. I want you to leave all to me. Is there anything else you've kind of picked up in terms of quotes from the film that... Um... There's just that scene that I mentioned about when Diane Keaton's speaking to um, Al Pacino about uh, being naive. Hmm. I can't remember the exact wording, but about how, um, you know, he was going down the business route, so yeah. he was naive about doing that. And then she says that, you know, you'd be better off doing a senator than, or a governor. And he says, you know, why is that? They don't kill people and who's been naive now, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. Which you wouldn't quote. No, but it's but good. It's, yeah. it's, it's memorable in, yeah. in that nice. sense. The but bad, the bad, the big sunny was one. Yeah. Like we, we talked about that earlier. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think... it's actually quite Shakespearean. Yeah. Like... Yes, I mean, when you look at the Shakespeare's plays about revenge, about families and things like that, there's a certain Shakespearean tragedy. In fact, mm -hmm. that's probably the best way of doing it. It's quite a tragedy, this film. I mean, yeah. even, I mean, even Michael at the end, I mean, he's only respected because everyone's scared of him. Yep. So what sort of respect is that? It isn't. You know, his, his dad's dead, his brother's dead, yep. he's exiled his other brother. Yep. You know. Um, oh, but a man like that is scary because if he's willing to do like, yep. the things he's... I think, I think that's... I think at the point at the end of the film and the man that Michael becomes is very far removed to the dawn that we meet because... Mm -hmm. He is, although he's a bad person, he's got, he's got like a soft touch around family and stuff like that. Whereas Michael, at the end, is very calculated, very meticulous, very focused, and there's no, there's no redeeming qualities. And I'm not saying that Don's a nice person, but he, 
he might for some people have some redeeming yeah. characteristics whereas Michael has none mm-hmm. he is cold he's just cold 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 um, and and that's it and, and that is true I think the more you talk about Shakespeare and stuff it is a bit of a tragedy yeah. and it is that um, but yeah I, I think I think there's a couple of quotes that people will instantaneously think like we've done it in Flash as soon as we said quotes you say it I think of depending on who was sitting talking now yeah. if you were a big fan you would be able to go boom 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 there's few so I would say that this film is quotable to a point yeah. maybe not necessarily like others but I think this is a quotable film so I think this is a tick for this one not well received by contemporary critics short reviewers we're not going to we're not going to bog down in this. I mean, this is lauded as one of the best yeah. films ever made. It holds a 9.2 out of 10 based on 1.8 million ratings on IMDb, which is a site that people go on and sort of look at. It's the highest rated movie on IMDb, only behind the Shawshank Redemption, which is nowhere near as good a film as, as this, in my opinion. But I think it might have people maybe like it more in terms of redeeming qualities of characters. You probably like Shawshank better than. Actually, I don't. You I, don't. I th- think that's rather overrated. Yeah, I agree. Um, I never got the. I thought because of the characters, you would have maybe have been able to get in with them. I don't more know why. Like... I, I I I don't like it to be honest. It's. I, I think it's an overrated it, film. It, but again, I think that touched on what I'd said to you before the podcast about how. Certain people allude to certain things because it makes them look cool, mm-hmm. and it's and it's like the bluffer's guide about how many people quote about films or talk about films, yeah, but haven't actually, you know, seen them yeah. or don't necessarily believe what they're saying, but it sounds cool and it sounds good. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I could see that. Um, Rotten Tomatoes the film holds a 97% fresh rating on the tomato meter based on 149 reviews and it's a 98% audience score based on over 250,000 ratings Um, that's the film's been out for 50 years and it's still high it's nearly 100 I mean 97 98% I mean it's not doesn't seem like it's dipped Mm -hmm. much Um, I think in terms of audience and uh, these sites that obviously weren't around when the film came out but mm. it's one of those films that people have obviously flocked to once they've seen it and the internet's been a thing and put their put their um their scores in there um empire magazine's kim newman uh, i love empire magazine i've got a stack of them that i, I used like, to buy i like since. kim newman as well uh, kim newman yeah. kim newman gave the film five out of five on the review for the magazine saying with performances style and substance to savor this shows how it is possible to smash box office records without being mindless which is actually more poignant now than it maybe was at the time mm-hmm. because i think the biggest box office successes are kind of mindless Whereas this was a box office success, but it was done in the sort of right way in terms of cinema. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it wasn't like a as much as it was a popular book and stuff, and it kind of was a vehicle. Yeah, it's not like these silly blockbusters that just go and make hundreds of millions or billion dollars mm-hmm. because it's people can go and munch popcorn for an hour and a half. You know, yeah. there's films out there that have made loads of money that are absolutely terrible to watch. But again, I think it's a, a lot of films now, special effects driven. Yeah. And um, people expect the big, the big blockbusters because it's, it's a sensory overload that you're getting on your senses with things that are going on now. 
Yeah. Some of the best critics of all time um, have... Well, actually, before we talk about some other critics, I want to say that Metacritic is a thing that we don't we stop bringing up because after the first couple, we realised it was the harshest review metric <laughs> and films that were actually really good were getting like two out of five. But this is quite weird. Metacritic uses a weighted average as a sign of film. It's a sign of film, a hundred out of a hundred. I don't know how that is. Roger Ebert, everyone knows him. He wrote for Chicago Sun Times. He's probably one of the most recognised names in film critiquing. He praised Coughlin's efforts to show to follow the storyline of the novel, which is something that Nick said that they, this, this film follows the book as close as it possibly can. The choice to set the film at the same time as the novel, the film's ability to absorb the viewer over its three hours time, which is me, I get massively engrossed in this film. Um, yeah, he, Roger Ebert named The Godfather the best film of 1972. Um, he gave the film four out of four. Gene Siskel, another name, um, older film review, gave it four out of four as well. Um, Pauline Kael, New, York, New Yorker, it's another name that people would be super familiar with in the critic game. If there, were, if there ever was a good example of how the best popular movies come out of a merger of commerce and art, The Godfather is it. I just think it's one of these films that's massively lauded. I, I struggle to find a negative review. I, I have struggled to find a super negative review about this film by film critics. Maybe that's a bad thing because it is sort of held in such high regard. It's almost like Citizen Kane in a way, and I feel like Citizen Kane and this film are the kind of, what's the better film? And I think, I'm not a Citizen Kane fan, I don't really like it, I don't really like Orson Welles, so I prefer this film. But Citizen Kane, everybody says, is the best film ever made. I prefer this film, and I think this film's the best film ever made. I think it goes but back... I just think yeah, it just... But I think it goes back to how you, you, you look at things. I mean, I've, I've made it clear about my subjective viewpoint and the objective one. And again, a, a lot of people, again, with Citizen Kane, which I, I, I like as a film, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's one of those ones people were lord about their own credentials. Yeah, because um, I, I think Citizen Kane's, like you said, these fakers try to fake it. Yeah. It's like, because I think they read these lists or they see it and they yeah. go, I should maybe tell my friends that I think this is a good movie. Yeah, I mean, I mean, because it'll make me look cool I'm, or I'm, make me look educated. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I find it quite interesting. I, mean, I read an awful, awful lot beforehand about these things, just out of curiosity. I, I've, I've got used to over lockdown when I'm watching a TV program or film, adds to my enjoyment to find out what has the actor done the before. Same. Uh, what other people say? Can't about. help Wikipedia yeah. or Google well, that's something. It. And I'm not denigrating anyone because everyone's got their own opinions. Um, but I, 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 but I do find, as I said, that in my life I've had so many people who quote something like a particular film, and a lot of them will be genuine, but a lot won't be. And it's trying to determine the bluffers from from the genuine, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and again. I'm not going against people bluffing because, you know, it's... Fake it till you make it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but again, I just think it, 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 can be some, it can be sometimes a lonely path that you're, you're walking if you find yourself with a different opinion, not that you wish to be controversial or yeah. anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I, I mean, some of the arguments you then see online about things, it's like, well, it's a subjective view. 100%. You know, it's baffling sometimes, I think. Yeah, accolades through the roof. Critics loved it, critically acclaimed. So I think it's probably we'll move on to the last couple um Controversial topics, subjects, and themes. Or exposed controversial topics, subjects, and themes. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Because it gives you a deep dive into the life of organised crime, which is somewhat a controversial subject. Probably more so then than now, because you've got all the other medium. But I think at the time, it was probably a part of the world that mainstream media were probably trying to stay away from. Yeah, I mean, I also think that touches on the fact as well as about the view it gives of the Italian community. That was another one as well. Um, I mean, again, as an outsider looking in, and I've harped on about it quite a lot because I think it's been quite important during this, separating fact from fiction, the mythology from the reality. I mean, with this and an awful lot of TV series and films afterwards, if anyone was to ask you what you thought the Italian community was in New York... That would be this. It would be mafia-dominated, protection rackets. Now, that's obviously not the case, but I no. don't know how much of a... You know, on that... Well, it's it's funny, that, it's And hard. I don't want to be stereotyping nope, people. But it's hard. Or, it's really or, hard. Yeah. Or, and again, this can be the, the, the problem with popular culture is how much of an impact it has out of all proportion to the subject matter that it's referring to. Um, and again, I don't think the women really come out all that particularly well No, um, in this film either. Well, we, no, nobody comes out of this yeah. film particularly well. Like we were saying, that Amber's trying to give you somebody that might have redeeming qualities, but... But she knows. That's she, the thing. Like, she, Kay she, knows, and she, she knows still what, wants to do it. Yeah, she knows what he's like. I, because I think, well, she, one, does love him, they do obviously do have a love for each other, but she also thinks, well, I'm it's protected, more, it's, it's comfortable. More, it's I'm it's more morally stuff. acceptable to be a corrupt senator or, or governor than to be actually... I just don't over, think it is. It's the same. I think she yeah, knows but, exactly but that, what that's, was going to happen. That's what yeah. I get when I actually say about the, about mm. the role about it. But again, um, women are housemakers. They're there to support the husband. Um, did she just give up her job as a primary school teacher because that's funny because you never ever see her because like, um, she was with kids I'm guessing she was a teacher that was her job I think I th I, you know I think so I mean again but it's, it's difficult because I, I can't remember much of a backstory for her nope other than the fact that um, she just falls for him yeah. and 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 the, sa and the same of, um, when he goes out to Sicily I mean she knows her role within the Italian. Yeah, that's that's a bit of a weird relationship. Well, I think that happens really fast. It also you know, does, I mean, but I mean, it's kind of like one of those things where I think the father of her knows yeah. exactly who he is and how yeah. powerful his family is, and I think every I feel as though it's a business merger. There's an angle. <laughs> yes. There's a big angle here. But again, it's it's difficult because. Everybody loves an Be, angle. Yeah, though. because it covers a 10-year time That's span mad. as well. I'm not entirely sure how long... He was in Sicily. He was in Sicily <laughs> before that. Um, um, I'm going to say five years. Uh, so, I mean... I don't know. I mean, not be... Yeah. It, it, probably doesn't, it doesn't tell you in the film, mm -hmm. which is probably yeah. it should, and it doesn't tell you in the book, because I've not read it, mm -hmm. but you've not brought it up. Maybe it does tell you in the book how I'd, long it's been. Again, it's been that long. Um, but again, as well as... 
because you're focusing basically on an Italian community, you're not getting any idea about anyone else. You know, the, the non-Italians, the non-whites, or the, you know, the whites outside. Well, Obviously, they're yep. painting the police in a very good light, which is, there's other films like this that probably had backlash. Well, I mean, again, I mean, if you had films going going up to that period, why should you have corrupt police officers? You'd also have, have honest good police. Oh, there's no, in fact, there's no balance when you look at it like that. And that goes back to the, there's no redeeming qualities or things that I can I can relate to. Mm-hmm. And this is again why I found it a bit odd when you said earlier on about the the near universal acclaim to the film, which I can get because of a lot of things that you mentioned. But there are things which you know, would be problematic today. I think about um uh you know about these sorts of things. No no um, like uh, but I know that the, this film is also surrounded in controversy. Like just reading here soon after Paramount Pictures announced the production, the Italian American Civil Rights League held a rally in Madison Square Garden claiming the film would slot would would amount to slur against Italian Americans, which is probably which, I would, what, I would which actually, is probably uh, I, I, I think that's happened. That's yeah. probably happened as mm-hmm. well, because I, I think maybe for a period after this film, people that were Italian American, honest, hardworking people, mm-hmm. people would have went, "Nah, you're just one of them." Mm-hmm. Well, just think, you saw this when you were fifteen. Yes. Right. So you've got no. Context I've got about, no, I've got no yeah. concept to life at that point yeah. either. So you're watching that, right? Yeah. And you probably bought into a lot of that because you don't know any different. That's you true. Know, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, on things like that. And again, this can be, you know, you know, you know, part of the problem about things like that. Trying to get access to reality and truth, particularly in this internet-dominated world, is extremely difficult. I think. Also. I think because of the subject matter and what you're trying to look for, I don't necessarily think that... But I think that there's probably not a lot of honest people because it might lead to them essentially... What do you, what's the word for... If they come out and say something, it would potentially lead to criminal charges. You know, they might convict themselves if, if they come out and go, "This happened, this happened." Well, yeah, but, it's, um... and it's it's difficult. I reckon if you read a hundred books on organised crime of over the last hundred years in uh, northeastern America, I, I reckon that a lot of those books would have different stories and different opinions. Well, on that's them. it. So it's um... yeah, but I can understand why it was controversial. Uh, I mean, I think that was a big one, like the talent that, yeah, and it's maybe not like, like, it's super controversial as others, but I think you've got to also remember the time and, and, and the timing and just how it could have affected a lot of people for a long period of time. Um, And actually, it kind of goes hand in hand with the cultural impact and legacy, which is the next part. The amount of things that is, this is kind of spawned or like, because of this has became a thing, it's been probably really difficult for Italian Americans to not have that yeah. sort of slant on them because they've still they've maintained content in films and TV yeah. shows and productions about this and and it's always got a negative slant. Yeah. And it, that's kind of unfair. But at the same time 
us as consumers are watching it and fueling the fire. So what do you well, do? Well, that's the same with an awful lot of popular culture. Um, because we, we like the excitement and this imaginary world, especially if it's removed from our own world. Um, you know, and things like that. So, yeah, I think it. I think it is kind of one one of those. Um, I, I, it's a funny one as well. Like looking at part of what people are saying, how the Godfather changed cinema forever, and that's well, it probably did do that. But somebody's wrote here, it made Italians seem like more fully realised people and not stereotypes. I disagree with that statement. Yeah, that's wholeheartedly. A, that seems a, um, it helped Italianize American culture. The Godfather also changed the star, the star system of the 1970s as Don Vito Corleone, man, man, the one best actor, which refused and was returned to leading man status. Fair enough, but... No, it didn't make Italians seem like more fully realised people. It made them seem as morally corrupt and yeah. terrible human beings. Yeah. There's not a good person in this film. I mean, well, I, get, like, I mean, again, it, I mean, it also it makes them very hypocritical. I mean, again, going back to that scene when you're talking about the christening. Yeah. Um, even the wedding as well, when you think about it. I mean, the wedding's a, a Christian ceremony to bring together... Um, or like a Catholic ceremony, a Christian ceremony, whatever. I don't yeah. know what religion is, but I'm going to guess it would be well. Catholic, well, it's Catholic so. because it's a, it's a Catholic. Um, uh, I think Christian at the end on that. Um, so I mean, again, it's it's the wholesale corruption that's indicating throughout the whole of society. Um, yeah. I think, um, yeah. I think the 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 controversy. I don't agree with that statement at all whatsoever. But yeah, the the cultural impact and legacy of this film is absolutely massive. Though mm -hmm. it's got to be one of the biggest in terms of, especially the films that we've done so far on the podcast. I mean, like it says here, like you brought up, there's lots of gangster films that preceded The Godfather. But. Coppola steeped his film in Italian immigrant culture and his portrayal of mobsters as persons of considerable psychological depth and complexity was unprecedented, which I said is a massively complex film and some hugely com complex characters. He also took it further with Godfather Part Two. I mean, like the success of the two films, critically, aesthetically and financially, was a catalyst for the production of numerous other depictions of Italian Americans as mobsters such as Goodfellas and The Sopranos. <laughs> David Chase doesn't write The Sopranos if The Godfather doesn't exist as a film and is highly successful and people because people have bought into it. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem with this making so much money is there was a market because people wanted more and more and more and more. Like we say, us as consumers Fuel, fuel the fire essentially. Well, I mean, you, you, you're getting secondhand thrills. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody, nobody wants to. Well, not many people want to kill someone, but to be watching a film in which you're seeing other people kill, in a world which you're getting secondhand thrills, but it doesn't directly impact on you, takes you away for an hour, two hours, three hours, what have you, um, to another place. I mean, gangster films, as I said before, weren't specifically. Italian gangsters, yeah, and it was an outsider, predominantly looking in, and you might have had corrupt police officers, but they were normally 
good people wanted to change things. Um, yeah. And, you know, and again, you've got nothing like that. It's absolutely, it's it's mad. I was just just reading here, um, talking about the sort of cultural impact. And get, this is apparently, apparently according to sort of gangsters rep- this is on Wikipedia, by the way. This isn't me. I mean, I mean, it would take me years to probably research this myself. But gangsters reportedly responded enthusiastically to the film. Yeah. Salvatore Sammy the Bull Graviano, the former underboss in the Gambino crime family, said, I left the movie stunned. I mean, I floated out of the theatre. Maybe it was fiction, but for me, that was our life. It was incredible. I remember talking to a multitude of guys, made guys who felt exactly the same way. According to Antonio Fiato, after seeing the film, the is that the Patriarca crime family members, Polly and and Tess and Nicky Giso Giso. I don't know. I'm terrible at pronouncing names. All of their speech patterns to imitate that of Vito Corleone yeah that's it. Nick's brought that up as well That's I didn't realise that but yeah it's mad how something that can change people but it was interesting to say that is like for us it's fiction as our consumers but they're watching their life unfold in cinema and I never even thought that's kind of blew my mind because I didn't understand it because I can't put my mind in but something it, like it that it means then that they're looking at these people as being their heroes and it's glorifying it mm, that goes back to you yeah. know, you know, to that fair. point um, that's fair I think in terms of a film it's culturally significant and it's got a huge legacy Um and like we've touched upon it multitude of times, I think what it's done, what it done for the film industry, um, and it's maybe especially Italian American gangster films, is massive and TV shows. Um, I just wanted to touch upon something which I found quite funny because it's um, about one of the scenes that I think is the best in the film, the cross cutting and the, the the baptism and the sort of bumping everybody off. The film's baptism sequence was parodied in the season four episodes Fulgencio of the comedy series Modern Family. Mm. I'm going to, after this podcast, I'm going to YouTube that and see how it looks. Um, There's been a video game that came up in The Simpsons. Tony Soprano's topless bar in The Sopranos is called Bada Bing. It's culturally, but even obviously the Sopranos is probably like the Sopranos isn't written without films yeah. like this. But even to have a wee snippet there, John Belushi appeared in Saturday Night Live sketches Vito Corleone in a therapy session. They said, they said of the Tataglia family. Also, they shot my son, shot my son Santino fifty six times. Um, yeah, just, in, the, in the good life, it came up. It's like Tom Good. What is a good life? Do you know the, the TV? The good life was a TV series in the mid seventies with uh, Richard Ryers and um, uh, the Kendall, and they had opted out from modern day life to in suburbia grow their own food and uh, have their own. That's quite funny because that seems like an idyllic thing. But it's, even the Godfather has infiltrated that in a way. 
Apparently Tom Good says about a rooster he intends to shoot, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. <laughs> it's just, it's oh, she, Which is as far removed from The Godfather as yeah. you can get a British comedy series. Yeah, but it still um, managed to make yeah. its way in there. It's infiltrated loads of culture, mm-hmm. or pop culture. And then obviously I want to touch upon it, that uh, April 2022, 20, a 10-episode drama series The Offer premiered on Paramount Plus which is about the production told from the perspective of the producer of the movie which looks absolutely fantastic stars Miles Teller who's recently just had a massive smash at the box office in Top Gun Maverick which I've not seen I'm not really a big fan of Top Gun but Miles Teller is a great actor and I will watch this I just don't have Paramount Plus but I will seek it out because it's something that will really interest me but yeah I think cultural impact is a big one for this, and I think quotability, but and the controversy might not be as harsh. With that being said, that's the rules. We're going to swiftly move on to the third act of the podcast, which is, is it a cult film, first and foremost, and does it deserve a place on the list? This is a film that categorically should not be on anybody's cult film list. I agree. It's not, the word cult and the Godfather as a film are so far removed. I think what people misinterpret with cultural impact and legacy and cult are completely different things. This film is arguably one of the best films ever made, all things considered. It might hit a lot of the rules. It's hit a few of them on the podcast but how can a film that was the highest grossing film of 1972 and for a time of all time and one of the films that changed cinema be viewed as a cult film I just don't think it can be so yeah that was a short and sweet one do you want to touch upon anything or are you just going to say I'm agreed you're just like I, well I agree all those points I mean it's, um, just, it's a mad one I just don't know I don't know who made this poster right and whoever did it was a bad choice to put this on there you probably didn't expect somebody to be reviewing all the films and turn it into a podcast but I did so um, but no I, can, I have nothing to add that covers everything that I, I think about the film as well so yeah I mean that was short and sweet at the end of the podcast there it's been going on for a while we've been sitting talking for a while so we're going to wrap things up um, yeah um, sadly obviously Kenza isn't on this episode he missed out um, but yeah it's been an absolute pleasure having Nick back on the podcast and he will feature on another episode very very soon um, we won't tell you what film that is until the podcast comes out but yes looking forward to that one it's a film I haven't seen but I'm really really looking forward to watching it I'm looking forward to your views on that because it is one of my favourite all time movies actually well that would be interesting not from different to the Flash Gordon, I think it's okay. got a big impact culturally. Yeah, but well, I, I, that's the funny thing is that I knew about the film without knowing about the film, yeah. and I suppose that's how it works. Um, but yeah, and as always, if you would like to get in contact with, or if you'd like to check out the podcast, you can find it on all major streaming services. You can hit us up on Instagram at Cult Film Cafe. Go over there, give us a follow, like our post, stuff like that. And if you would like to send us an email, if you want to come on the podcast, you want to get in touch with us, you can send an email to the cult film podcast at gmail.com. And as always, if you'd like to get in contact with myself and see what I'm getting up to, you can find me on Instagram at 081331productions. Go over there, give me a wee follow, that would be much appreciated. But first and foremost, go to your podcasting app of choice and follow the podcast. Check it out, please, please, please. Um, I have a lot of fun doing this. I know that Ken's had a lot of fun doing this, and I know that Nick's had a lot of fun coming on the podcast as well. So, yeah, 
until the next time, Mr. Hill. It's been a pleasure as always. So it's a goodbye from me. That's a goodbye from him. Podcast out. You took me off balance over that one.